Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. This is the 41st edition of the AFP Report, a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to American Free Press if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. Today, I am joined once again by Dr. Kevin Barrett, a leading voice in the alternative media and a regular columnist for American Free Press. All right, Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome back to the program, sir. How are you today? I'm well, John. Good to be back with you. Good. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I hear the birds chirping in the background. It sounds like it's a, a nice, beautiful, sunny day. It, it is here where I'm at as well. So <laughs> thanks again no, for joining Yeah, thanks. The birds are happy. Me. It's not that sunny, but they're still singing for whatever reason. Oh, okay. Well, it's nice and sunny and just a beautiful day where I'm at. So thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to discuss the latest issue of American Free Press, which is, of course, America's last real newspaper. And let me start off by just encouraging listeners to go out and pick up a a subscription to the newspaper if you don't already have one. You can find all the details at AmericanFreePress.net. And I hope you will consider to support one of the last remaining independent populist print newspapers in America that is not afraid to cover some of the most controversial topics in our society, which we will be discussing as we proceed here. Um, So, uh, Dr. Barrett, we just finalized issue 23 and 24 of American Free Press last Friday. The paper has been sent to the printer and is currently being printed and mailed out to all of our print subscribers as we speak. We had a lot of great articles, as always, in this most recent issue of the paper, including one that you wrote about two populist statesmen vying for political office, and of course that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the United States, and then Imran Khan in Pakistan, which I'm sure most Americans probably are not too familiar with Imran Khan, so we'll talk more about that as we proceed here in this podcast. Um, I want to start off by discussing the front page story, which focused on Alexander Soros, and this was a story that I wrote for the newspaper this week. And I described Alex Soros as the son of the infamous nation-wrecking billionaire plutocrat George Soros. And he's also the current chairman of the Open Society Foundations, which is like the main, you know, the main organization that Soros founded and supports to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And almost immediately after we finalized this, this issue on – it was like late Thursday afternoon by the time we got done – The Wall Street Journal reported that George Soros was officially handing control of his $25 billion empire to his son, Alex. Um, And I actually have that report up here. I'll just read just briefly from it. The headline is, George Soros hands control to his 37-year-old son. And they quote him, quote Alex as saying that, I'm more political than even George Soros was. Wow, I thought... uh, George Soros was pretty political with all the far-left prosecutors that he's funded over the years, not to mention all the subversive political and social causes that you know he funds to the tune of millions and billions of dollars every year. And this is how the article starts. It says here, George Soros, the legendary investor, philanthropist, and right-wing target, is handing control of his $25 billion empire to a younger son, Alexander Soros, a, self-de- a self-described center-left thinker 
who grew up self-conscious of the family's wealth and wasn't thought to be a potential successor. The 37-year-old who goes by Alex said in the first interview since his selection that he was broadening his father's liberal aims. We think alike, the elder Soros said, while embracing some different causes. Those include voting and abortion rights as well as gender equity. He plans to continue using the family's deep pockets to back left-leaning U.S. politicians. Quote, I'm more political, Alex said, compared to his father. He recently met with Biden administration officials, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and heads of state, including Brazil's President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, to advocate for issues related to the Family Foundation. So um, I'm curious, what did you make of the front page story? I'll get I'll get more into it, but I'm just curious. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And actually, before I turn it over to you, um, I just wanted to mention that really what prompted this story was that Alex Soros posted a photo on his personal Twitter account of him and Vice President Kamala Harris. And he captioned the photo with, great to catch up, Madam President, Madam Vice President, excuse me. Which, I mean, seemingly indicated that this wasn't the first and probably not the last time that he would be meeting with the country's top officials in Washington, D.C. And, of course, just prior to meeting with Harris, Alex Soros published this lengthy op-ed in CNN, which was basically praising the Biden administration's recently released national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, which is like this it's like a, a first of its kind initiative designed to marshal the entire resources of the federal government to combat quote unquote anti-semitism which as we know basically amounts to stating facts about the role that organized Jewish groups and Jewish individuals play in society and even pointing out that Alex Soros met with top officials in the Biden White House would be denounced as like you know, anti-Semitic, like promoting an anti-Semitic trope by groups like the ADL, despite the fact that he himself posted a photo of himself with Kamala Harris, essentially bragging that he's hobnobbing with the country's leading officials. Well, what this uh, campaign against anti-Semitism really means is that you're not allowed to talk about any Jewish person or any Jewish group, except in glowingly positive terms. Any criticism or negativity is strictly off limits. That's a pretty big advantage you have if you're a person or a member of a group that can't be criticized. You can only be praised. And it's funny, you know, sometimes people say things uh, like, for instance, that uh, abortion is a Jewish sacrament. I believe that was first stated by I forget which uh, Jewish person who's pro-abortion. And so they, they love abortion and they love it being a Jewish sacrament. They're all very positive about, about Jews and Judaism. Okay, you're allowed to say it. But then if you're Dr. E. Michael Jones and you're strongly against abortion and you're critical of the power of organized Jewry, then you're not allowed to say exactly the same thing, that abortion is a Jewish sacrament. So this ban, it's a ban on any form of criticism. And it's, uh, it's just bizarre, right? So if you post this picture of Alex Soros and Kamala Harris and notice that they met, then you, you're an anti-Semite and the whole federal government is going to marshal its resources against you. And then somebody else who loves Alex Soros and Kamala Harris and uh, is a philo-Semite and, and a supporter of Israel or what have you, puts exactly the same information up, posts the same picture with the same comment, 
then uh, that's fine. So it creates right. a really bizarre, uh, nonsensical double standard. And it's it's kind of frightening that this whole this concept of anti-Semitism is being pushed this far. And it tells us something about the society that does it. You know, when there's a, a group that's so powerful that it can ban any criticism whatsoever of itself and mandate only praise uh, and, and especially ban anybody saying that that group has any power. It's uh, it, it, it's puts us in a, a kind of almost a you know a humorous Kafka esque uh, kind of situation, and that's yes. pretty much where we stand today. Yeah, yeah, well said. Well, and you know the thing is, is it's 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 not even necessarily limited to criticism of Jews or, or organized Jewish groups or people like George Soros, for example, or Alex Soros. It's actually even broader than that. It's it's basically just acknowledging basic facts of, of, of reality. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, stating basic facts about Jews that are easily, easily, uh, you know, demonstrable, even by, like, going to his Twitter feed and saying, hey, look, here's Alex Soros meeting with, you know, one of the top officials in the Biden White House to praise their, you know, recent released national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. I mean, like, just... Pointing that out and saying, look, you know, is this um, what does this reveal about the way politics, you know, about American politics and the role that these people play in our society? I mean, even like pointing that out is like, you know, quote unquote, anti-Semitism to these people. So, yeah, it, it's just a, it's, it's a total joke. It's a like a total just, you know, Orwellian, you know, boot in your face like type tyranny where you can't even acknowledge reality. And, you know, another part of like another aspect of the article is that. More and more people are recognizing the subversive influence of Soros and organizations that he funds. This whole idea of like, uh, you know, Soros prosecutors is becoming more and more mainstream. And I even quoted, um, you know, two more or less mainstream figures, uh, you know, two, two or two more or less mainstream journalists, I should say, and, and you know, sort of activists, Glenn Greenwald and Alan Dershowitz, who um, are both, I should I should mention, also happen to be Jewish and happen to be, you know, noticers of Soros and what he's up to. Glenn Greenwald had a hilarious tweet um, that I quoted in the article where he basically retweeted the photo. And he said, you know, he said, remember that this family, which uses its vast wealth to influence politics across the globe more than any other, is strictly off limits from being mentioned, let alone criticized. And that really like goes to the heart of what this is all about. You know, here's a guy again on his own Twitter, like basically bragging that he's working with the Biden, you know, top top officials at the Biden White House. He's meeting with them in Washington, D.C., you know, to you know, he has their ear. He's, you know, talking about politics, you know, political issues that that he's concerned about and, and, you know, advancing them. And yet you can't even mention this, let alone criticize it. You know, that's really what this is all about. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's interesting that Greenwald and Dershowitz uh, are, are you know, two people pushing back against this from very different perspectives. Greenwald, I would argue, is that his Jewishness really doesn't seem to be that much of a factor in what he does and how he sees the world. And that's true, actually, of a fair number of uh, Jewish folks, many of them sort of on the political left, and as Greenwald is, actually. Dershowitz, on the other hand, is a rabid Zionist, you know, a, a client of Jeffrey Epstein and a, uh, a pretty disreputable individual who wears his Jewish ethnicity on his sleeve 
and you know, cheer, rapidly cheerleads for the genocide of the Palestinians. And but even Dershowitz, uh, he doesn't like Soros, and, and he, if he can't criticize Soros, he's going to be called an anti-Semite, which I guess he actually was. And so that's pretty amusing. You know, Alan Dershowitz, who's so rapidly uh, pro-Jewish state that he wants to exterminate the Palestinians. Uh, is essentially, you know, now being called an anti-Semite for criticizing Soros. So it's the whole, you know, the world's getting pretty topsy-turvy. And then, of course, if, if Soros were to criticize Dershowitz right back, then he would be anti-Semitic too, because Dershowitz is Jewish too. So that means even two Jews with different opinions are no longer allowed to criticize each other. And that's a real, really unprecedented, because, of course, there's that famous old saw, you know, two, two Jews, three opinions. Jews used to be quite famous for their uh, very intense Talmudic disputations and things like that. Jews are overrepresented in the legal profession because they have a tradition of being good at argument. And you know, that goes back through their Talmudic schools and so on. But now I guess they can't even argue with each other anymore because if they do, they'll both of them will be anti-Semitic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the world is, is just going off the rails. Things are, are getting uh, too strange to even keep up with. And, of course, this whole left-right thing is also completely off the rails, where the Soroshes are supposed to be left-wing. Excuse me. They're supposed to be anti-capitalist. Wait a minute. These guys are the ultimate capitalist extreme right-wingers. Everything they do is about preserving the wealth of the billionaires. That's the definition of capitalism, rule by capital. That is rule by money. And specifically, the people who accumulate uh, money and play with it uh, rather than are using what money they have in a specific productive enterprise. When capital is fluid and flows around and is used to make more capital, when money is used to make more money, whether through interest uh, or usury or through currency speculation or what have you, that is the definition of capitalism. When, when the people with money are free to do that and they have so much money that they rule society, that is the classic Karl Marx definition of capitalism. That's what Soros is. He's the world's most extreme right-wing capitalist. He's not leftist at all. So why do people think of him as being a leftist? Well, because the concept of leftism has been completely hijacked and turned into the opposite of what it really is. Uh, and so now we think of leftists as people who want to impose LGBTQXYZ on everybody, uh, who uh, have pushed through so-called gay marriage, who are uh, pushing for prosecutors who won't prosecute even egregious crimes. None of this has anything to do with left. It's the opposite. All of that serves the billionaire agenda. It wipes out the working people, the working class, the class that the left represents, or is supposed to, in favor of the capitalist rule. So Soros is the most, uh, he's the ultimate nightmare of a real left winger, the ultimate nightmare of Karl Marx. You know, Marx said that God or that money is the real God of the Jews. And he didn't mean that in a complimentary way. And if he could see Soros, you know, he would see Soros as, as totally the extreme embodiment of that and, and as his worst possible enemy, the ultimate capitalist. So the world has, has gone, you know, it's flipped upside down and inside out. You know, black is white, you know, truth is lies, uh, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And, and, you know, that's the world we inhabit because people like Soros, the ultimate extreme right-wing capitalists, have taken over everything and used their money to push complete confusion and uh, dysfunction 
and uh, degeneracy and, frankly, bullshit on the entire population. Yes, sir. Very well said. And, you know, I, I wanted to just comment and, and, and mention I, I specifically quoted Greenwald and Dershowitz because you're right. They do come from like total opposite ends of the political spectrum. And I think that's why Greenwald, for example, who is, you know, a more traditional, genuine, progressive, you know, le- left wing guy, basically. You know, he's honest, He, at least for the most part. I mean, I, I've been uh, I, I remember following Glenn Greenwald back when he had his old blog on like uh, the, the, the blog spot, you know, back then. And um, he was, you know, writing very critically about the, the war on terror and all the injustices of the, the Bush administration, but he wouldn't touch 9-11. And to my knowledge, he still hasn't to this day. So, he, you know, I, I think he is sort of gatekeeping on some topics. But overall, I think he's a phenomenal writer, a phenomenal journalist. You know, he's covered a lot of very important topics. And his approach to criticizing Soros comes from a genuine, traditional, you know, progressive left-wing critique of this international plutocratic billionaire who is promoting all these cultural Marxist agendas all of, all over the world. And then, of course, Alan Dershowitz, who, you know, as you mentioned, is more of a right-wing figure. He's this prominent Jewish attorney and law professor. He actually wrote an op-ed basically defending Elon Musk, who described Soros as uh, – what did he say? He said that Soros hates humanity and is actively seeking to erode the very fabric of civilization. Two critiques of Soros that I would completely agree with. And, uh, and it's Elon weird Musk, agreeing with Dershowitz, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and Elon Musk wasn't saying these things you know, in like an anti-Semitic way. He was just basically pointing out the agenda of Soros is very subversive and yeah ultimately under you know undermines and erodes the very fabric of civilization i think that's 100% spot on and it has nothing and, and elon musk certainly was not commenting on his jewishness or anything like that and yet the groups like the ADL continue to go after elon musk i just read an op-ed by uh, jonathan greenblatt the ceo of the ADL who was calling for twitter you know elon musk who owns twitter to shut down tucker carlson and, you know, to combat anti-Semitism on, on Twitter, you know, it's just a total joke. These people are never satisfied, never happy with anything. Um, but anyways, Dershowitz – and Dershowitz is an interesting figure because he – I mean, you know, you might might disagree with him, but he is actually somewhat honest at least many times, you know, and, and it does take principal stands. Well, he's, and, he, and he he's, said he kept his underwear on when he got a Jeffrey Epstein massage, so I don't know if he's always <laughs> honest. Well, right, exactly, yeah. I mean his dealings with Epstein are, are certainly, you know, very, very suspicious to say the least. But, I mean, when, when it comes to political matters, oftentimes, I think anyways, he, he does have – some interesting things to say, and he has talked about the role that Jews play in society and, and their power and influence, and has basically said, look, you know, we, we Jews do have a lot of power and influence, and it's it's been rightfully earned because we're successful, we're smart, we're intelligent, we're, we're intelligent. So he's basically like admitted, you know, that you know the organized Jewish community and Jewish individuals do play very prominent roles in society, and it's because they've earned that, and and you know that's a much more principled stance than groups like the ADL who would openly gaslight you and deny that the Jews have any sort of influence in society, you know? Um, but anyways, uh, I thought it was interesting, you know, to, to see these two, you know, total like polar opposite political figures basically, um, exposing Soros and saying, look, it is okay to, to, to criticize this guy. In fact, there's even a, a new group that was recently launched called Jews against Soros, 
which was established by a guy named Will Scharf, who I believe is running for – he's a Republican candidate for the Missouri um, attorney general position. Um, he was a former federal prosecutor and a conservative activist. So this organization, Jews Against Soros, was founded by him and another guy named Josh Hammer, um, who is a senior editor-at-large of Newsweek. And, you know, he's a podcast host. I see his articles published at um, Chronicles, I believe it is. Um, so anyways, you know, two, two like conservative figures who, again, are Jewish and are pointing out that, you know, Soros does have this very destructive agenda. And, you know, noticing that and criticizing it is not in any way anti-Semitic. And really, that's the, the, the shield that people like Soros and, and groups like the Anti-Defamation League and other prominent Jewish organizations and individuals have used for so long to prevent any sort of discussion, acknowledgement, or criticism of their activities. Right. Well, I guess Jews against Soros will soon be uh, attacked as a bunch of self-hating Jews by the likes of the ADL. But yeah, it's, it's true. It's why why is Soros shielded to this extent? You know, why is it that you know, if you criticize some of these conservative Jews, you might not be harassed, but just mentioning Soros, just disagreeing with Soros in any way, shape, or form, makes you anti-Semitic. So he's got some kind of special protection. And I would argue that that's probably because he is working closely with the interests of the ruling elite, uh, including working with the CIA to overthrow governments that the uh, permanent deep state wants overthrown, uh, governments like the uh, former government of Yanukovych in Ukraine in 2014 and so many others. Uh, so he, he's, you know, he, he uses his currency power to destabilize the currencies of governments that the deep state people want destabilized. So he's a huge player in the deep state, but unlike many of them, he has a big public presence and his, his face is well known. And so now he's starting to take all of these attacks politically from a wide range of kinds of people who disagree with him, whether they don't like him putting in prosecutors that don't prosecute or whether they don't like him overthrowing countries or destroying countries' economies. There are a lot of people, of course, who have good reason not to like him, but because he's playing an important role in the deep state, they are offering the special protection by making him sort of the face of the guy that you should never criticize in any way, shape or form or else you're an evil anti-Semite. Right, exactly. Well, and that is getting very tiresome. <laughs> it's been very <laughs> no it's kidding. been it's been getting it's been very tiresome, I should say, especially to people like us who actually like I mean. I, I follow like the explicitly Jewish press very very closely, and all of all of the knowledge that I've I've accumulated about the Jews has basically come directly from them, from their own publications, from their own statements, um, including in fact here's here's a good one, and, and I wanted to run this past you. I actually found this over at um, a website called informationliberation.com. It's a really good uh, sort of blog, news and commentary type website, and. Um, they put up an article uh, sort of you know, highlighting this Wall Street Journal report about how Soros is officially handing control of his $25 billion empire to his son, Alex. And they have a, um, a quote here from an interview that Alex Soros did back in 2018 with a reporter from the New York Times Magazine. And Alex Soros in this interview basically admits that his father – 
um, his philanthropy and his activism and his politics um, are, are intimately tied to his Jewish identity and that how he feels Soros feels a solidarity with other minority groups and that um, his his understand and this is very common like this is a very you know sort of mainstream position in the in the Jewish community especially among like Jewish activists um, they feel a solidarity with other minority groups and they work to advance multiculturalism and quote unquote diversity because they view or, or they believe that Jews can only be truly safe in a world in which all minorities are protected. And he ha there's actually a quote in here directly from the New York Times Magazine where he says, uh, the reason you fight for an open society is because that's the only society that you can live in as a Jew unless you become a nationalist and only fight for your own rights in your own state. And um, I think that was very, very revealing. And again, this is like a, a sort of mainstream attitude among you know Jewish activists, they are fundamentally motivated by their the, by their Jewish identity, by their understanding of Jewish history and alleged persecution and, and these sorts of things. And yet, um, you know, again, this is something that we're not allowed to comment on or, or, or notice or discuss, despite the fact that is reported in the New York Times Magazine directly from Alex Soros's own mouth. So, Dr. Barry, do you think this is relevant information that people should be allowed to honestly discuss or is it anti-semitic and off limits to acknowledge what people like alex and george soros openly admit to and post on their own personal twitter accounts or tell reporters from the new york times magazine for example yeah no it's i i, I think what's interesting about that is that i i think that this professed concern for the protection of minorities in order to so the Jews can thrive alongside all these other minorities, uh, that sounds pretty benevolent, really, right? It sounds almost like selfless. Well, these Jews, they don't just care about themselves, but they also are working for the other minorities and trying to protect people against persecution, and it's all good. To a certain I mean, it, it, that's not entirely without its element of truth. However, I think it also is a big smokescreen for a deeper reality in which the real reason that it, these powerful forces around Soros, not really so much all Jews, but uh, that, but many, uh, that the general thrust of organized Jewish power has been to try to really prevent the cohesion of, uh, of societies and to sort of break societies up into smaller pieces that the real reason for that isn't so much to be you know, protecting people's rights and saving people from persecution, but rather it's because a fragmented society is much more vulnerable to the depredations of big international capital, big finance. It can move into that kind of society and buy up anybody that it wants to and uh, essentially uh, just run the show and loot and pillage to its heart's content. Its heart's content. In other words, it rules. And if you have a large, more powerful and more cohesive society, that society it has its own sort of bargaining power, right? So when the big international corporate financiers come into that society and say, we want to buy your raw materials, or we want to come in here and do a project with you, or what have you, you know, they want something, then the leader of that society, the leaders, right, they can say, okay, yeah, but, you know, we're going to demand terms here. We're not going to just roll over and let you dictate the terms. 
And so the more cohesive and powerful society with a strong government uh, actually gets better terms in its bargaining with these international plutocrats or oligarchs who dominate the West right now. And so I think that's why people like Soros, it's, it's not, it's not you know, this whole notion of, oh, Jews are a persecuted minority that wants to protect other persecuted minorities. This is all sort of the equivalent of a religious dogma uh, and, and a sort of a, a, a propaganda message at an emotional level that hides the real power game that's going on here, which is international capital raping and pillaging uh, fragmented societies, societies that are sometimes even broken up into smaller pieces. You know, the Oded Yanon plan in, in the Middle East is an Israeli plan to bust up the Middle Eastern countries around it into little tiny balkanized ethnic and sectarian enclaves, which then could be easily pushed around and basically looted and pillaged by the Israelis. And likewise, uh, we, we see all sorts of examples, like in Morocco, uh, there's a whole controversy about the Western Sahara region. Moroccans believe it's part of Morocco, which it has been historically forever. And separatists say, no, these Sahrawis, this tiny little population of people in that uh, mostly desert but extremely resource-rich region, uh, are fighting for their uh, minority rights, right? They're the classic sort of you know, persecuted minority that people like Soros want to protect. Well, guess what? Why, why does Soros and his friends, why do they want to protect the Sahrawis, quote unquote? Well, to steal their resources, because if Morocco has, uh, has the Sahara, then the phosphates of the Sahara are going to be sold at a higher price. And if the if the Sahrawis run their own show on this little tiny you know place with they have no bargaining power now the handful of people that live on that land will still be quite rich they'll be living quite opulently based on the lousy terms that they get from the likes of Soros and the other international financiers, but the overall price of those phosphates will go go way down and the big profits will be made by Soros and his friends right so that's why these people want to bust up big coherent societies with strong, competently run governments, such as Putin's Russia, uh, and turn them into places like Yeltsin's Russia. Totally balkanized, totally broken up, no cohesion, uh, people living in total poverty, the lifespan of the male lifespan 10 years lower than it was and that it is now. So that's what they're really doing. And all of yep. this nonsense about protecting the rights of minorities and so on and so forth is a smokescreen for big capital to rape, loot, and pillage doesn't really have that much to do with Jews per se, although, yeah, people from Jewish ethnicity are grossly overrepresented in among the extreme uh, ultra-rich uh, plutocracy of the people like Soros. Um, but they're, they're not all Jews. You know, Jews are maybe, what, 40, 50 percent of those people. And there's another 50 percent that are non-Jewish. And all of those oligarchs are raping, looting and pillaging. And all of them, like having George Soros, go around smashing uh, these societies into little tiny pieces and balkanizing them and busting up all of the institutions that could make those societies cohesive, such as the family, the, the, you know, the strong, traditional, heterosexual, reproductive family unit. And uh, everything else that could make those societies cohesive, they, they are trying to destroy. And they're trying to destroy it so they can rape, loot, and pillage them. That's what's really going on. We shouldn't get caught up in all of this you know, nonsense about protecting minorities. Yeah, no, that's uh, very well said. That's a, you make a lot of really good points. And, and this is – see, and this is one thing that, that has always struck me is, is like the hypocrisy of these people. Because you're right. They do, they do promote you know, minority rights and diversity and all this other nonsense. In America, in Europe, and in in other countries, and yet they will be the most 
strident defenders of the Zionist Jewish state of Israel, right? I mean, groups like the the Anti-Defamation League, for example, um, you know, promote massive immigration into America and in other parts of the world and, you know, gay rights and, and you know, they want to allow illegal immigrants who have come here Ill illegally, I kind of repeat myself there, but, um, you know, g grant them citizenship and things like this. And yet they are strong supporters of maintaining the Jewish state of Israel. So you can see that there is clearly an agenda behind all this and the hypocrisy is simply insulting. Yeah, and and that shows again that they're they're not sincere in their beliefs about protecting minorities. If they were, were they they'd want to protect the most persecuted minority on earth, which is the Palestinians. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, I think we'll kind of move on here. Um, I know we've already kind of commented on the Biden administration's national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Um, I wrote a piece in this most recent issue of the newspaper sort of highlighting and, and, and commenting on it and, you know, making a lot of the points that we've made previously. And it, one thing that struck me is that it's, it's really, truly amazing how such a, you know, a tiny, quote unquote, persecuted, allegedly powerless group of people has the ear of the entire federal government and the White House and can get them to develop this national strategy to prevent criticism or knowledge of their activities. It's, it's quite astonishing, actually. It sure is. Well, it's it's also kind of humorous. You know, you, you can't it's it's almost like, you know, like a comedy script or, you know, a joke that, uh, you know, we're, we're so powerless and persecuted that if you say anything bad about us, uh, you'll never work in this town again. You know, it's uh, and and they they kind of keep saying this with a straight face. They don't get the humor of it. Now, some there are plenty of Jews who do. Now, let's face it, among the many talents, uh, unusual talents of the Jewish people. Uh, are a talent for comedy. You know, Marx Brothers certainly uh, embodied that, and it degenerated a little bit with Jerry Lewis. But, but let's face it, you know, Jews are, if you're going to be, you know, stereotyping and generalizing people, we say, well, they tend to be smart, funny people. Um, but uh, when they talk about this stuff, they're they're basically, you know, we're, we're so we're so powerless and persecuted that if you have, if you even look crosswise, <laughs> cross-eyed at us, you'll never work in this town again. You know, it's a joke, but they keep a straight face and, and they act like, you know, they're terrorized and terrified. Uh, so it, then there are a few like Joel Stein, who wrote the classic L.A. Times piece, uh, Who Runs Hollywood? Come on, in which uh, he essentially faced the uh, humor of the situation of the ADL, you know, claiming that that you know, anybody who, who claimed that the Jews run Hollywood was a horrible conspiracy theorist and anti-Semite. And of course, Joel Stein found that hilarious because, of course, the Jews totally run Hollywood. And he went over all the details in that great article. Yes. So there are folks. Yeah. So, so I mean, there are there are still Jews with a sense of humor about this, and, and who can you know talk uh, straightforwardly about reality like Joel Stein does, and and also the reality that he says, well, I don't even care if if uh, people know that you know Jews totally run Hollywood and the banking system and the political system and everything else. I just want to keep running it. <laughs> I want us to keep running it. So you know that that's. Quite uh, charming, disturbing. Boy, I'm, I remember, honest. yeah, I remember the first time coming across that article, and I was just like, oh my gosh, is this real? Like, it is, yeah, it, it is very, very, Stein. yeah, a very, very eye opening piece, and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it. I've got some of the quotes from that article on my personal website, therealistreport.com, in the quote section. And yeah, it's, it is really like a classic. And yeah, here, here's a guy just, 
going through all the details, like literally every single Hollywood studio that he cites, it's like almost all of them. I think it was almost every single one. Like without yeah, yeah, pretty much all. He he finally found one that he didn't think the guy was Jewish, and he he called him up, and it turned out you know he didn't have a Jewish name, but he still was Jewish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and of course, this article was written back I think in 2008, so um, things may have changed. You know, the the the, I don't think that much. Not no, well, not that much, but like the precise details. But overall, his general point was 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 very very well taken, and yeah, he was kind of just poking fun at this idea that well, and see the Anti Defamation League, um, they often describe like pointing these things out as um you know promoting anti-semitic tropes well what happens if that trope happens to be true i mean is it is it still off limits i mean just because it's a quote-unquote trope or whatever i mean it's just ridiculous the way they think they have this ability and and they've been very successful you know to just control our discourse control our language control what we can and can't talk about and frankly that's really what this national strategy is all about one of the key pillars is reversing the quote-unquote normalization of anti-semitism which again you know essentially just amounts to you know talking about you know what the jews are doing and and, and noticing like they had do in fact have you know organized groups operating politically and culturally and socially across the country and they are pursuing interests that maybe we wouldn't agree with necessarily you know what i mean it's just like you can't even they, they want to prevent any knowledge or just open discussion of, of what they're up to and that's what that's really what this is all about. So I don't know if I could really say too much more about it. I feel like I make the same points over and over when it comes to this topic. So um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about it before we move on. Well, just the, the extreme power of the ADL and these other lobbies and groups that have been so successful at uh, pushing this this notion of, of you know, policing people's speech and uh, around anti-Semitism. I think that the, the reason that they're so su- successful at this is that, of course, that they're attracting a lot of money. I mean, the, the ADL has a $100 million a year budget. And the reason for that, I would argue, is not so much that it's just that fanatical Jews who are paranoid about anti-Semitism are, are really you know, coughing, digging deep into their pockets and writing checks. But I think it's also some of the really big, rich players like Soros and, and others, people with huge piles of money who want to keep the world safe for global capitalism are the ones who are actually doing this because by outlawing criticism of the likes of Soros there and by making it an issue about you know Jews or anti-Semites uh, it, it distracts from the actual economic looting and pillaging that is really the issue yes yes very very well said um, well, I want to move on and talk about your article. And, I, you know, actually, before we do that, let me just mention um, Phil Giraldi wrote an excellent uh, – it, it actually turned out to be a four-page spread in this issue of the newspaper um, talking about the – I think it's the 55th anniversary of the attack on the USS Liberty where Israel attacked the USS Liberty, killing 34 American servicemen. Um, it's really never been properly investigated. There, there have been independent investigations into it, um, which he actually quotes from from one of them. Um, but the, the the official, you know, federal government has really never come out and acknowledged this, let alone, you know, done something about this. I mean, this is a you know an attack on a on a, on a U.S. ship, you know, resulting in in, the, in frankly the murder of you know 34 U.S. servicemen is just totally outrageous. And the anniversary was. Um, 
just last week, what, what is it, June, I think it's June 7th, uh, 1967 was when the attack happened. So I just wanted to mention that it is a, a great article going through all the details of the attack and the cover-up and just the total disgraceful nature of the federal government. And, and again, demonstrating that, one, the federal government is basically in the pocket of the pro-Israel lobby to such an extent that, that Israel can attack a U.S. ship and get away with it. You know, not face any any sort of repercussions, and two, the fact that this event has largely been kept secret, and most Americans simply have no idea that this happened. That's right. It's a, a national scandal in, in a whole lot of ways, and one of them, of course, is that uh, on the anniversary of the Liberty attack this year, you know, Trump was getting you know prosecuted a second time for what is a pretty minor crime compared to what Johnson and other presidents, of course, committed pretty bad crimes, too. But what Johnson did, well, besides, you know, conspiring in, to, in killing his president predecessor and, and taking power, Johnson here conspired with the Israelis to murder. He wanted to murder the entire ship's crew. Said he, I want, he gave the direct order, I want that goddamn ship going to the bottom. And that is just beyond, you know, it's high treason, it's mass murder. You can't really imagine a worse crime for an American president. So Trump you know, was sued for supposedly raping a woman three decades ago. She can't even remember what year it happened. And there's no evidence whatsoever except for her word versus his. And then he's being prosecuted for having taken classified documents to Mar-a-Lago and been less than fully forthcoming about giving them back. I mean, that all it seems pretty small potatoes uh, compared to Johnson's murdering John F. Kennedy, uh, conspiring to murder hundreds of sailors on the unarmed spy ship, the USS Liberty in cahoots with, uh, with this war criminal state Israel. So yeah, it was a it, kind of an interesting moment there uh, as, as the Trump uh, prosecution coincided with the Liberty anniversary. Right. Yeah. And by the way, let me correct myself. It was actually June 8th, 1967 and this year is actually the 56th anniversary of the attack so i'm sorry about that i just wanted to correct that for the record and yeah it's a, it's a total total travesty um again sort of just underscoring that in in demonstrating the power and influence the organized jewish community and the pro-israel lobby have over our political and historical narratives it just you know sort of proves that once again in spades um, so I did want to mention that article. I thought that was very, very good. And then um, finally, let's kind of wrap up and talk about the piece that you wrote about Imran Khan and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast. Um, and I know you've been following Robert F. Kennedy Jr. pretty closely. I've You've had a, a couple other articles published in the newspaper um, about his presidential bid, and I know you've talked about it on some of your radio programs that you do independently. Um, before we talk about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., first off, can you just go over who is Imran Khan and why should he be relevant to Americans? Well, you know, I first heard of Imran Khan back in, I think, 2009, which shows you that I'm not a cricket fan <laughs> or, you know, I don't even follow international athletics that much because everybody who does knows that he was the greatest ever cricket player. You know, so he's, he is to cricket, I guess, a little bit like maybe Muhammad Ali to boxing. or It's, it's actually hard to find another example of somebody who dominated their sport so much. So he was a, a huge athletic hero uh, in Pakistan, and he was a celebrity, and he hung around with royalty in Britain and so on and so forth. And at some point, he 
started to have a sort of a you know an, an inner crisis about this uh, superficial glamour that he was experiencing uh, as a as a celebrity, and he ended up becoming uh, devoutly religious, pious, in, in good you know not not a, a Quran thumping kind of uh, fundamentalist or anything, but just basically his personality shifted and he he stopped living for his ego and started really trying to serve the the best the the greater good and and specifically the oppressed people of Pakistan and so I heard about him in 2009 from Gordon Duff who was then a senior editor of Veterans Today he since left uh, left Veterans Today which has changed its name to vtforeignpolicy.com anyway Gordon is a CIA veteran. I, he's not allowed to say that, but I guess I am because I've said it once or twice and they haven't had to kill me yet. And uh, Gordon has a ridiculous Rolodex full of important people that he has known and so on. And, you know, he, he says a lot of stuff. A lot of people doubt, but he actually does know a lot of these people because I've been there when I've been on calls with them. <laughs> and, and, and so I, he, I actually had a shot at interviewing Imran Khan back in 2009, 2010. And I really wished I'd pushed harder for it and gotten it because uh, Gordon told me this guy's going to be the future prime minister of Pakistan. Now, at this time, nobody knew that. He wasn't even talking about running. But then, of course, he ultimately did. And he did a very good job. The economy was doing well. He was uh, making progress, rooting out corruption. And then the American uh, team decided that he had to go because he was too balanced between Russia, China and the U.S., too, especially too friendly to Russia and also too friendly to making deals with China that would benefit the people of Pakistan. So uh, when when uh, Russia went into Ukraine last year, Imran Khan would happen to be in Moscow and he didn't say anything against it. He went home to Pakistan and the CIA went in there and bribed Pakistani corrupt lawmakers and basically organized a coup d'etat that overthrew Imran Khan. And so since then, there's been a populist movement supported by the vast majority of the ordinary people of Pakistan to get him back into office. He wants to run in the next elections coming up next fall. But the deep state in Pakistan is dead set on preventing that because not only is he going against American orders, but he's going against all of these Pakistani deep state guys who are on the American payroll, taking these bribes, uh, and he wants to throw all the bums out and basically change Pakistan into an honestly uh, and competently governed country. And he's willing to lay his life on the line for that. He narrowly survived a very serious assassination attempt with, with two separate gunmen, one the, you know, the patsy, the obvious patsy one, the other the professional on the other side. And through a miracle, he survived that. This was last year. And they've been going after him with lawfare, even more ridiculous than what Trump is experiencing. Uh, so in this article, I pointed out that you know he's this this rare bird, the honest politician. And remember that Jesse Ventura had told me, no, don't says don't call me a politician, call me a statesman. I said, you know, when you have this these uncommonly honest and spiritual type people like RFK Jr. Imran Khan running for high office, now that's that's kind of a special occasion when that happens. You know, we have actually some real statesmen who are aspiring to the highest offices of these incredibly corrupt countries, Pakistan and the USA. Yeah, very well said. And and I got to say, yeah, Robert Kennedy Jr. has impressed me. I mean, he's um, th there's some things that obviously I would probably disagree with, but overall, yeah, his, his yeah, and I, that goes for any politician or, or any 
journalist or activist or whatever. You know, we're not all going to agree on everything, and that's that's fine. That'd be a very boring world if we all did. <laughs> but um, I th- I do think that um, his his integrity is very um, it, it, it's it's obvious. It's on display every time he speaks. He seems to be a very genuine person. You know, he means what he says and says what he means. And, um, you know, he's taken some bold stance, stances on some very controversial issues. And I think it's a, a very positive development, you know, to say the least, that he's announced his candidacy. Have you been following it pretty closely? I actually – I think I, – I don't know if I mentioned to you. I actually sent an email to the campaign just to see – I mean I know it's kind of a kind of a long shot if they would, you know, do an interview with, with me and American Free Press. But I figured it's worth a shot at least. I, I did email him to see if he would be interested in doing a you know, podcast interview. Um but anyways, you know, I, he has he has definitely impressed me, and um, I think the issues that he's running on are, are, are very important and very uh, very critical to the future of the country. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think he's he's his analysis is really good. You know, basically he says that what he's going against is the corrupt merger of government and corporate power, and he says his goal is to heal the divide. So basically, he wants the people who are you know fighting about all these issues especially the sort of culture wars issues he wants to you know he, i think he accurately sees that the billionaire oligarchs who are merging government and corporate power especially bankster power to steal from the rest of us are keeping us fighting each other on these other issues now i may have strong opinions on some of these kinds of issues that the culture wars issues and uh, that's well and good. But in terms of a viable political project, I think that uh, RFK Jr. has the right idea in trying to heal that divide so that he can go after this corrupt merger of corporate and government power that killed his father, killed his uncle, did 9-11. I think he's a closet 9-11 truther. He hasn't ever come out and, and said he is, but I'm pretty sure he would be. And uh, so that that's a, a noble reform project, and he's you know putting himself in the gun sights of very powerful people, the same kinds of people that killed his father and his uncle, and I have to respect that. So again, oh absolutely, uh, that's what, you know, that takes a uh, yeah. Well, he's certainly a statesman, um, much more of a statesman than any of these other clowns running for office, e- even Trump to a certain extent. Although I do sort of. It's very obvious that they're engaged in this lawfare campaign, as you explained. Um, that, that's that's pretty clear. But um, you know, I, I think Kennedy's on a on a, on a whole other level. <laughs> you know, certainly after seeing Trump in office for that first term. So um, I'm sure we're going to be talking much more about both Trump and Robert Kennedy in the coming no, weeks Ken- and Kennedy's months. Kennedy's competent. If Kennedy yeah. gets in office, he actually could get things done. That was Trump's problem. Was you know he could talk a good game, but he's not competent enough to get things done. Right. Exactly. Well, Dr. Barrett, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and to go over some of these articles in the latest issue of American Free Press. Keep up the great work. I will have links over to – I know you have a Substack page. I follow you on Substack, and then I also follow you on Twitter, so I'll have links over to both of those platforms when I post this podcast. And, yeah, I look forward to doing this again in the future. Likewise, John. Well, thanks for a great conversation. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Bye.